Okay, thanks for coming. Glad you're here. Uh, last last week we we spoke about um, we spoke about the return to the Garden of Eden and uh, how how on a on a deeper level. See, we have this we have this pasuk uh, from the Torah um, after Adam and Eve uh, ate from the tree of knowledge. It's um it's actually a kind of a, a landmark. Uh, passage that everyone has to know. It's uh, chapter 3, verse 21. I'll read it in English. It says, And Hashem made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. So, um, he made for them garments of skin, and he clothed them. So, the most simple, simple, simple reading of this would be that it was a leather garment, and they were clothes. Okay? But, um, but, but once you start to get into the deeper uh, commentaries, you see that no, it was a, it was a, a, a radical transformation of the human condition that took place there. That we were creatures of light beforehand, and that God clothed, uh, clothed us with our actual skin, which we have on our body right now. So we went from creatures of light to creatures that are skin bound, and in fact. The word for light in Hebrew and the word for skin in Hebrew, they're homonyms. They sound exactly the same. They're both or, or and or. The only difference is, is that light is spelled with the letter Aleph and skin is spelled with the letter Ayin. Um, otherwise, it's the same word. So we went from creatures of light to creatures that had skin on them. And... Um, and now we're going to go back to being creatures of light again. But when we go back to being creatures of light, that light will be actually a higher light because it's a light that's going to come from having been creatures of skin. So we'll, we'll be even further because we'll have evolved even more meaningfully. Now we also said that, that this is the nature of our human condition and the nature of existence in the world that God asks us to seek the unity from the standpoint of um, duality. In other words, God puts us in a place of confusion. This world is a place of hiddenness, of opposites. God puts us in this realm, and then from this place of hiddenness, He asks us to find the truth. That is... That, that's, that's another way to express what's going on. Now, I saw, or actually I was learning from the, uh, from, from the B'nai Yisachar, where you see, um, in this Pasuk that I just read to you, I'll read it to you in Hebrew now, you'll see amazing references to what we just said. Amazing, amazing references. This is, um, actually, the, the truth is, is that it will really be more meaningful if you have a, a chumash in front of you for this, or if you, if you have, a, if you have um, someone who has one right now, you can kind of share it with them. In, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in this edition, in the art scroll, it's uh, page 18, um, and it's chapter 3. Verse 21. Um, and so let me just read it to you in Hebrew for a moment. It says, 
Yas Hashem Elohim la Adam Uliishto Ketonus or Vilabishem. Okay? Now, again, in English, what that, that means is, and Hashem God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Now, what happened, remember, after we ate from the tree of knowledge, after we ate from the tree of knowledge, we brought death into the world. Okay? And the word for death is maves. Okay, that's how you say death in Hebrew. And so when we went from being creatures of light to creatures of skin, that was a manifestation like of, of death acting itself out because now all of a sudden we had a clock on us, right? So if you look at the three words, la Adam ule ishto ketonas, to to Adam and to his wife, clothing. If you look at the last three letters, mem, vav, tav, spells death. Maves. Pretty interesting, no? But what's going to happen, it's the destiny of humanity, of the world, that we're going to evolve back to an even higher place. So now look at this. If you look at the, if you look at the um, last three letters of the last three words, ketonis or velabishem, it's tough resh mem. If you rearrange those letters, you get tamar. Tamar is the mother of Mashiach, of the Messiah, right? And many generations later, she gives birth. Now let's do the last three letters of another three words here. Uli ishto ketonas or. Take the last three letters of those three words and rearrange them, and it spells out rus. So rus is the descendant of Tamar, who is the great grandmother of David Hamelech, which is the messianic line. So here you have the whole acting out, and there's a claw that when you're dealing with the last letters, they call it sophotevos, the last letters of, of the words. This is a system of understanding Torah in a very deep way. Um, that you're hinting at the ends of time, right? So here, here you have like a little miniature of the history of civilization leading up to the fixing of the entire world. You have death being brought into the world, and then you have the whole um, genealogical lines of the redemption of the entire world, all, all contained within here. The Torah has everything, everything in it. It's, it's, it's just a question of, is Hashem blessing you with the eyes or not? That's all. It's not, is it there, is it not there? It's all there. Just a question of, can you read it? So, um, uh, and another subject, which is an, a tiny bit of continuation of this subject. I, I said last week um, that uh, Sefer Shmos, the book of Exodus, which is the book of exile, it also is the book of redemption simultaneously, but it's at least in the beginning, it very much starts with the uh, story of the Jewish people's uh, enslavement 
in Egypt begins with the word ve'ele. And I personally wanted to say on that word ve, said a lot on it, but the letter vav means to connect. That's what it means grammatically. Vav means and or or. It's something that ties things together. Um, Ele is the Gematria 36. And it says that the Or Haganus, this great original light of creation, burned for 36 hours. So I wanted to say this word Ele is hinting at the Or Haganus. And why is it appearing in the very beginning of the book of exile, the Ele? Because Hashem is hinting at us that we have to connect ourselves, that's the letter Vav, we have to connect ourselves to the Ele, to this hidden light. How do you make it through exile? By knowing that this great light exists, even if it's hidden, you connect yourself to it. Now in the same section where the B'nai Saskar was talking about all these last letters, he says in a completely different context, the word Ele is 36 and refers to the Or Haganus. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. But there you see it. So, so I was happy. But what I'm trying to tell you is something else. Is, is that when you learn these type of things, that the Orahaga news, first you have to find out what that is, you know? That there was this great light. Then you find out that it was 36 hours. Then you can look in the Torah and you can see, well, that word is the numerical equivalent of 36. How does that connect to something else? And you're off and running. You've been given all of these keys. You can lock, unlock all of these doors for yourselves. And you can get a backstage pass into infinity. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like this is... The, these are keys that you can get and then you can apply yourselves. I mean, it's an, it's an, amazing, it's an amazing thing. So, so anyway, that, that was an, an example of it. But, um, but let's keep on going. So there's a, um, there's a teaching that, that one should look at their tanned hides. Tanning is a process where you process the skin of an animal into usable leather. Okay? So you're supposed to look at the tanned hides before Shabbos starts. Okay? For all of you tanners out there. <laughs> um, so, um, that, so the B'nai Saskar says that on a very deep level, what this is hinting at is, is that you look at the tanned hides and then you go and you light the Shabbos candles. What that means is, one is to look at the skin that came upon us. That's the hide, that's the tan hide. And then you light the candles, meaning this is again an acting out of the future destiny of the world. Right now we have the tan hides on us, but we're going to light the light of Shabbos. The or with an aleph is going to come from the ore right now, which is with an iron, with our skin, this future light is going to come and it's going to be an even greater light. He says, if you, if, you, uh, if, you, if you look at something very interesting, we mentioned it last week, that, um, that these 36 hours burned starting midday Friday and burned all of Shabbos. So the very first Shabbos didn't have any darkness to it. 
It was all this great light, this or haganus, this light that's been hidden away, that's going to be returned in the future. So he says you see a very strong hint to it in the Torah itself, which is very cool. If you if you look at the chronicle of the days in the Torah, it says it says there was um, uh, it says there was um, let me quote it exactly. Vayihi er vayihi or yom, whatever. In other words, there was night and there was day because we know the Jewish the Jewish um, day begins when it becomes dark at. That's when the new day begins, when there are three stars in the sky. And the way I heard uh, 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 David Hertzberg, Olav Shalom, explain it, is that by for Jews, the hint of light is, is, enough, is enough to begin the day. In other words, once you have three stars, and you know that's the beginning of light, that we're already calling day. We're a very optimistic people. In fact, there was a... I'm sorry, the beginning of... At night, did I say... It? Right. So at night time, when there are three stars in the sky, that's the beginning of the day for us. Oh, yeah, that's the beginning of our day. Yes. Right. So, so um, I, read, I, read this, I read this historical fact that I thought was very interesting. There was a, um, a very cranky philosopher who's uh, studied in universities... I can't say I've ever really studied him, um, but his name is Schopenhauer. You know, you can feel very brainy just quoting him, you know. So anyway, apparently he was a real misanthrope. He really didn't like people, and apparently he slept with a gun under his pillow and, and was really, really, uh, really a fairly depressed guy. Anyway, listen to this. He blamed optimism on the Jews. <laughs> Can you imagine? The existence of optimism he blamed on the Jews. But here you see what, what better, what better uh, uh, example of how optimistic a people are, that, that we are. The fact that we call day, that day begins at night when there are three stars in the sky. We call that day. And not poetically, that, you know, when, when Shabbos starts, if, listen, we're very serious about it. You know, that's when the laws of Shabbos start. At, that's at night, you know, not the next day. At night, that's, that's when everything, you know, that's a, that's a very real concept for us. So, um, so, so, so all of the days say, Vayhi'er, Vayyor, Yom Rishon, Yom Sheni, they all say that, up to Yom Shishi. But on Shabbos itself, it doesn't say, and there was darkness and there was light the seventh day. In other words, there's no mention of darkness on the first Shabbos at all, which there is a very clear hint that the 36 hours of light, this Or HaGanus, this great light, shined all of Shabbos, because there's no mention of darkness at all on, on Shabbos. Hold on to it. Hold on to it. And if you have to explode, please do it outside, because... It will, it will be less cleaning in the shul. <laughs> okay, so, um, so, so I want to switch gears for a moment. Um, we're, we're living in hard economic times, so I think it's important to be talking about money. And, 
I want to learn a uh, I want to learn a a Mishnah um, from Pirkei Avos. It's uh, chapter four, Mishnah eleven, and it says the following: It says, Rabbi Yonasan said, "Whoever fulfills the Torah despite poverty will ultimately fulfill it in wealth, but whoever neglects the Torah because of wealth will ultimately." Neglected in poverty. So I want to go through some different levels of, uh, of this teaching. So let's begin from the beginning. Rabbi Yonasan says, Whoever f- fulfills the Torah despite poverty will ultimately fulfill it in wealth. So I think on the most simple level, one could say that, uh, that if you learn Torah and you really apply yourself during... Uh, during this lifetime, um, then you will be, you'll get rich. Well, we see a lot of people apply themselves very diligently to Torah and they don't become rich. Right? In terms of money now, we're talking in terms of actual dollars. So that, that can't be, that can't be it. So then I think the next simplest way to understand it or to not misunderstand it would be to say that it's referring to the next world. That if one applies themselves even in poverty in this world, they'll reap the riches in the next world. And that certainly, that certainly would be true. But I want to get, I, I think, deeper because that we know anyway, that we don't really need a, a, a uh, special Mishnah to tell us that we're going to get reward in the next world. We, we already know that. So seemingly it has to be saying something else. Let's keep on learning. The second part of this is very interesting. So we have kind of like an opposite in the first part. If you do it in poverty, you will succeed in do it, doing it in wealth. That was the first part. Now listen to the second part. But whoever neglects the Torah because of wealth, If, if I had to tell you to finish it off right now, whoever neglects the Torah because of wealth, how does it end? Right. So that's good. So you were listening. See, I would have thought it says, it says whoever neglects the Torah because of wealth will ultimately neglect it in poverty. That's what it says. But I would have thought whoever neglects it because of wealth we'll have to keep it in poverty. Because it seems like we set up an opposite in the first part, we should have an opposite in the second part. Right? Like, okay, you didn't do it when you were rich, when everything was good, so now you're going to have to do it when you're poor. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. That's what, I, that's what you would think it would say. It says, whoever doesn't do it when he's rich, you know what? He's not going to do it when he's poor either. But seemingly that's coming as a punishment. Whoever neglects the Torah because of wealth will ultimately neglect it in poverty. Or maybe it's just a prediction. I don't know. So we have to look at that also. So now, I would like to suggest, as a key to this, this was sort of something that kind of came to me that I got excited about, is, well, what does rich mean? You know, if we have a definition for rich, then we can learn this in a whole new way. So, in fact, 
at the beginning of this chapter in Pirkei Avos, they not so coincidentally ask the question, who is rich? <laughs> and the answer is, the person who's happy with what he has, the person who's semech bechelko, the person who's happy with his lot, that's the rich person. So now, there's something very revolutionary about this definition of rich, because there's no monetary number attached to it. See that it's, it's seemingly, it's, it's, anyone can be rich. You know, anyone who Western society calls poor could be rich. And anyone who Western society calls rich could be poor. Because if you have a lot of stuff, but you feel like you're lacking, or you're all eaten up because, you know, you're not getting pleasure from your wealth, or whatever it is, then you can be poor. You can be poor on your yacht. That's an, uh, that's an astounding thing, really. You know? You know, when we were growing up, there was Richie Rich, which was, and then the subtitle was, The Poor Little Rich Boy. Because <laughs> he didn't have friends. He did have friends, but, you know, I guess they wanted to make you uh, sympathetic to Richie Rich in the title <laughs> before you opened up the first page. The Poor Little Rich Boy, you know? So... So anyway, and yet you can be poor and you can be rich if you're happy with what you have. You know, sometimes, we've all seen it in our lives. We've all seen it in our lives. Sometimes you take, you can eat through a, a steak and it's like, you know, they may as well have been corn chips. And other times you can take one bite of a steak and you don't even have to eat the rest of the steak. It's just, you got so much out of that, you were so there. You know, so it's, you know, it's interesting. There's a blessing that God gives us by the Shemitah year. We're supposed to plant six, six years, and the seventh year we're not supposed to plant. We can harvest because things are going to kind of grow on their own for a period of time, for a year or two. And you can harvest just based on your needs. You're not supposed to formally harvest, but when you're hungry, you go and you get it. But, but God says, he promises us that the amount that we get that sixth year, that we harvest that sixth year, is going to keep us going for two years afterwards. Because we're not going to formally harvest the next year, and then the year after that, we're going to have to plant, so we're going to also have to wait another year for the whole harvest to come in before we get officially back on track. So the commentaries say different things about that harvest of this sixth year. One, one commentary uh, says that you're going to reap a huge amount. It's going to be a giant bumper crop, and that's how you're going to have enough to survive the next couple of years. Okay, that, that, would, that would make sense. But there's a deeper commentary which says that, you know what? You're not necessarily going to get that much more, but it's going to last a lot longer. Because just a little bit of that is going to make you full. So sometimes, sometimes, you know, we've got quantity and we've got quality in our lives. Sometimes you've got a lot of quantity and you've got the illusion of plenty, but it's just bloatedness. It's a lot of gas, you know? It's not satisfying, and in fact, it can even be painful. <laughs> and sometimes you've got a little bit, 
And it's good. It's like that's all you needed. I don't, you know, I'll tell you, when I was in camp, and I was, I don't know, I was maybe 11 or 12, um, they served breakfast and they served, um, they served like Apple Jacks and Fruit Loops and Frosted Flakes, but in the little boxes, you know, the little boxes, right? Not the big boxes. And you had to basically really like almost engage in fist fights in order to get like app, like Apple Jacks, forget it. You know, that was the, that was like platinum or something, you know? I mean, you know, so, and when you got one of those boxes back to your table, they didn't taste good. They tasted great, right? <laughs> right? We haven't quoted Tony the Tiger in one of these classes yet. Until now. Um, so, so I remember I was, I was like, Oh, Apple Jacks or Fruit Loops, whatever it was. I, I can't wait till I get home and I've got my big box all for myself. And I told my mother and she bought it for me. And I was, I was like, they must have changed the recipe. <laughs> it doesn't taste as good, you know? So sometimes you've got a little bit and it just tastes great. So... So because on some level you're satisfied with it and you take it seriously, you appreciate it. Take it seriously. So now, with this introduction, let's go back to the Mishnah and understanding that when we hear the word wealth now, what we're talking about is really being satisfied with what you have, okay? So remember, this is chapter 4, Mishnah 11. Rabbi Yonasan says, whoever fills the Torah despite poverty, will ultimately fulfill it in wealth. Okay. So now we have to understand, what's, what's the Torah? So the Torah is not a book. The Torah is not just a teaching. The Torah is the life that one leads once they integrate all of the teachings. Okay? So Torah, we say, Torah Chaim, the Torah of life. It's something that we live or we do our best to live, the best that we can, the best that we can. So, so, so if one is actually living the Torah life where they're appreciating what they have, so one who fulfills the Torah b- despite poverty, so they're appreciating what they have even though that they have very little, will ultimately fulfill it in wealth. Because all of a sudden they'll realize everything they have is so precious and they'll be happy with everything that they have that even though they were poor, they become rich. They're rich now. Their finances may not have changed one iota. They may have even have gone down. But they have 100% gone from poverty to wealth. Because they're living the Torah at this point. Now let's go on to the second point. But whoever neglects the Torah because of wealth, they have wealth, they have material wealth. But they're neglecting the Torah. They're not appreciating what that wealth is. They'll ultimately neglect it in poverty also. You know what? They weren't happy with a lot. They're not going to be happy. They're certainly not going to be happy with a little. (laughs) If they weren't happy with a lot, they're not going to be happy with a little. So, one 
of the deepest things I ever heard Rip Shlomo say was, God doesn't run the world in a one plus one equals two way. There's so much contained in that, you know? And uh, you know, everything there's there's such a the more we're getting more and more visual in our in our society. You know, I've talked about this um, cult of celebrity that we're living in today a bunch of times. And um, and I, I just thought of it on, an, uh, on another level. Actually, when we were talking the, the other day, Pirko, um, you know, in, I, I happen to be a writer, but so what I'm about to say right now is, is going to sort of like try to up the importance of writers, but not, not because I am a writer. I'm, I'm just trying to make a comparison. You know, if um, if you want to get a movie made today, it's it's helpful to have a good script, but that that's absolutely no guarantee. In fact, in in, in some instances, it may even mean little to nothing. If, however, you've got a major star, if you've got um, you know a major box office star attached, then they want to make the movie. Okay, and there are absolutely fantastic financial reasons why that should be the case. I'm not criticizing the economic model or the business model at all. What I'm just trying to do is, is, to, is to show this as a reflection a little bit of the times that we're living in. Because the script is the soul of the project. That's the inside of the project. The actor or the celebrity is the outside of the project. It's the visual aspect, the chitsonius, if you want to get you know, a little more technical. It's the outside of the project. And, and so, in this way, celebrity really represents the, 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 the most... You see, I, I want to make sure I'm communicating. The most superficial aspects, not superficial in terms of lifestyle, like, oh, you have a tiny dog in your tiny purse... <laughs> I'm not talking about that. You can you can draw your own <laughs> conclusions about that. What I'm talking about more I'm talking more you know more in terms of geometry, you know what I'm saying? In terms of like the outside, celebrity is the the actor is the visual component. The the script is not the visual component. That's the inside. It's it's everything it's it's about the outside. It's about, it's about everything. It's about being told one plus one does equal two. But we see one plus one doesn't equal two. Because we see that the amount of food that we're given in the sixth year might be, look exactly like the harvest that we got the other years. But that there's a quality to it. There's a blessing in it that makes it last longer. I'll give you another example of this, um, which is uh, when we gathered the man. So a similar dynamic took place. You see, you couldn't gather on the seventh day. So God gave you 
twice the amount on the sixth day. Sounds very much like the Shemitah year, right? So, so here's what most people think happened. You walked in the field, and where there was one portion of man, there was now two portions of man. But if you look at the sources, it says that's not what happened. Okay? What happened was, you took your one portion of man, and then you went back into your home, and it turned into two portions of man in your home. A private miracle. So what's kind of interesting about this also is that this quality aspect, this, this bracha, this increase, remember the word bracha, which means to bless, the root of that in Hebrew is beis reish chaf, which in gematria is 222, 222. The Maharal says the reason why the word for blessing and 222 are the case is because blessing means to increase. So that's why it's 222, everything is doubling. That's the nature of blessing, okay? So this doubling, this blessing happens inside of your home. And so I would like to just, you know, in keeping with what we've been saying up until now, that, you know, it's hard to fit an airplane in your home. You know, (laughs) the most exaggerated material signs of wealth can't really fit in the home. In home you really in your home you really have the little things, you know? It's that frame that you got on that expedition to that place which makes you smile and makes you feel warm and it takes up a little tiny portion of your table, right? But there's like so much embedded in it. And and so so I think that it's meaningful that this doubling, this aspect of blessing takes place inside of the home. Because it's in that place where one is really, it's really the headquarters for experiencing the quality of life. Not just the quantity, but the quality, specifically the quality of life. Chitsonios means the exterior. Is that the opposite of Yeah, exactly. It's the opposite of Pinimia. And, and when we talk about, you know, I'll just mention it just because you brought it up. You see something very beautiful in English in, in contrast to, I'm, I'm sorry, in Hebrew, in contrast to English. Um, the word um, face in, 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 uh, in, in, in English is is, uh, comes from the word facade. And facade means a false front, which means you're not, the face isn't really projecting what's going in on the, going on on the inside. There's a contradiction or a lie, a false front, face facade. In Hebrew, the word for face is panim, which comes from the word panimius, which means your inside, which means that that the Torah way is that your face should be a reflection of your innermost essence. So there should be this this aspect of of uh, of unity that, that 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 one is whole and that one projects their wholeness. What's going on in a person's face is 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 important. You know, I'll tell you something kind of 
crazy. I was walking down Wilshire this week, and I was on the telephone. And it was sort of a business-type call, and I'm just kind of walking down the street. And this Indian man from India, like really like very solidly built, you know, he had like a really broad chest and dark skin and a ponytail and a very intense face. And he walks, I'm like in the middle of walking on, I'm in the middle of a conversation on the phone. He stops me like very, you know, he had a lot of, uh, he was a, like a powerful guy basically, you know. I mean, he didn't physically stop me, but he basically physically stopped me. He stopped me and he just started talking to me like we were in the middle of a long conversation, even though, like, wait a second, am I walking someplace? Am I in the middle of a cell phone call right now? You know, I mean, that seemed to be wholly irrelevant to him. You know, we were, as far as he was concerned, in the middle of a conversation. Okay, he stops me. He draws a circle around my face and he starts reading my face and starts describing my personality and aspects of my life and things like this, right? Okay, then, okay, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure you have. And then he says to me, give me your palm. And I, I said, so long. <laughs> I was like, all right, you know, if I give you my hand, first of all, I'm, I'm never going to get away from you. <laughs> and you know what, I've got my own path and you're not it. <laughs> So I didn't say any of those things, but I just kind of, you know, waved to him and called back the person I was on the phone with who was tired of holding. <laughs> so this person was going into some level of detail. Go ahead. It, it's yes. One or the other. Either the face is a facade or yes. it's uh, reflecting the inside. Uh, Rumbum says the inner man and the outer man should be the same man. That's our aspiration. That's our philosophy. That's the Jewish way. Right. But... Uh, somebody's face, uh, so somebody else, a non-Jew, or somebody who's not aware of this, they're going to just be a pan face. They're not going to reflect what's going on here. No, 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 no. There's no no distinction between Jews and non-Jews that we're making here. We're just talking about two languages. That's all. And and the philosophy inherent in in the language. That's all. One, yeah, we're just talking about philosophy of language. Every single person's face is a reflection of what's going on inside of them. That's all humanity. That's for everybody. It's just that you see that truth reflected in, in the Hebrew. That's all. That's, that's all I'm saying. Um, so, so there is, by the way, such a hachma of reading faces. And it is, that is a, that's even in the, in the Torah. You can read faces, but um, this is kind of a, a bit of a lost art. You don't really, even a, even a palm reader who, who does it according to Jewish tradition is very, very rare. They're few and far between. But to find a kosher Torah face reader, <laughs> I've met one, by the way. I've met one, but they've, um, you know, they, they don't really take ads, ads out in the Jewish press. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, but anyway, since we are talking about this, let me just uh, mention something because it's, it's, it's uh, important. Especially, uh, I, I think there was a, a, an article in one of the big newspapers, someone told me, that as, as times, especially economic times, become more turbulent, people go to 
uh, psychics more and more. So, so let me just address the, just the very basic Jewish tenets of, of going to a psychic or um, maybe more accurately not going to a psychic and just why, why that is. So one is, one is not supposed to go, according to Jewish law, to a psychic, for sure. Um, and the reason is, is because we're supposed to walk before Hashem with wholeness. The, the, they use the, from the root tam, with purity, with simplicity. And God has asked us to live a life in this world where we don't know the future. He's asked us to live this way. And for many reasons, um, so that we rely on him and that we pray to him and everything like this. It's, 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 this, is, this is what God has commanded us, that we live a life in a certain way that we don't know the future. Um, now, we've been told by the prophets everything we need to know about the future. The world is going to get fixed. Death is going to disappear. All obstacles to connecting to God are going to go away. We know the big answer of the future. The details, that's, that, that, that's what prayer is for and, 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 and just cleaving to Hashem is for. Is so then positive? someone... Is that positive that there's reality to astrology and to Yeah, in fact, I'll tell you something. There's a very interesting halacha which says... That if, um, let's say you're about to board an airplane, okay, or a boat, and an astrologer comes up to you, you don't solicit the astrologer. An astrologer comes up to you and says, don't get on that plane, it's bad for you to get on that plane. So, so here's a very, for me anyway, a fascinating Torah question. Are you allowed to listen to him? Because if that, is a, if that is a prediction about the future coming from seemingly a, not a Torah source, are you allowed to listen to him? And the halakha is you are allowed to listen to him. Fascinating, fascinating point. You didn't solicit his, his, uh, that information. He came to you and volunteered it to you. You're allowed to listen to it. So that's a so so we don't we don't seek it out. Now there is something called the tzad hatuma, which would be translated as the impure side. We have the tzad hakedusha and the tzad hatuma, and they run parallel to each other basically. And um, God allows us to preserve free choice. He preserves our free choice at every single level. That choice always remains. They say parallel to Moshe Rabbeinu, who's the highest, 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 they say was Bilaam. So even at the level of Moshe Rabbeinu, you have a Bilaam. So it never runs out. The spectrum and the sides never run out. So even if someone, even if you were to go to someone and say, okay, you're a psychic, don't tell me my future, just describe to me who I am and what I am and everything like that. Okay, if they're not doing it from a kosher source, right, then they may actually be telling you things about yourself, but they are accessing that knowledge from the tzara tuma. Okay? So then what is permitted? Now, there is a very narrow range of something that is permitted, but you have to 
you have to, the, the, the number of people who do this are very, very, very few and far between, okay? Which is someone who can look at your palm and describe your personality and what you have to work on and not predict your future or look at your zodiac charts and tell you what it is that you need to work on. But those people, if they really are connected, have certain amounts of information and they unless they're really spiritual masters, they often won't be able to help but to tell you <laughs> within your quote-unquote kosher reading what's going to happen. <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's best to avoid in general, is, is the bottom line. If you can find one of these few and far between individuals who meets all of those criteria, then if you want to go, you can go. But they're really few and far between.